Welcome to Public Safety Talk Radio, the podcast for all of our heroes of public safety, including law enforcement professionals, firefighters, EMTs, corrections officers, healthcare workers, and more. The show is produced by the POCUA and is founded upon its soundness initiative. This episode is sponsored by the finest service organization, a provider of line of duty death loan protection through many of our POCUA institutions. Welcome to part two of Victim-Centered Methodology. Well, you're not a cop, but you're an inventor, and I really want to dig into these methodologies. You have invented a victim-centered death investigation methodology oh, the as, murder well, room. Yep. as well as a murder room methodology. So tell mm-hmm. us more about that. So my grandfather was an inventor. He holds several patents on making bricks. My family was in the brick business up in Pennsylvania in uh, the early 1900s. And I just sort of followed in his footsteps because my dad used to give me piles of junk is the best way of describing it like um like Make a straw out of this. yes that's exactly right a piece of string a piece of plastic a piece of wood you know a a, a fan blade and like a, a a strainer or something you know like crazy things sounds like, like an inventor version of chopped but go ahead yeah he was like now do something with this you know make it into something do something make this do something and so i would build i always wanted to catch stuff in the creek I was wanting to catch salamanders and crawfish, you know, the little things that look like um, little lobsters. Um, I've been to New uh, Orleans before, I'm aware. (laughs) But this is in Pennsylvania, so I don't know what they're really called there. Um, But anyway, they're the ones with the little claws. And, you know, I would always want to catch those. And they always, you know, they swim backwards. So that was always a challenge to create something that would, you know, catch them like that. So I would, I would, I grew up like as a complete gigantic nerd, which of course, you know, there's nothing different now. I'm still a giant nerd. Um, But like I learned from my dad just to always problem solve and try to build something out of nothing and to improvise when something didn't exist, invent it. It wasn't like, oh, well, we can't do that. That doesn't exist okay well if it doesn't exist we need to we need to build it and so um that was kind of the mentality you know i grew up with my dad was not an inventor he was a banker i mean he was totally different than my grandfather um and i never knew my grandfather but he would tell me all these things about him so my dad kind of had this master plan so that's how i ended up becoming an inventor the first thing i invented in the law enforcement community was the kaleidoscope system Uh it is uh, you know, it's been around a long time now. It's been around since 2009, came up with it in 2008. Um, it was known as a different, under a different name back then. And then in 2013, I, I reinvented the whole thing and built all, invented all these new, new pieces basically. And it became the kaleidoscope system and it, it reconstructs shooting trajectories and bloodstain trajectories at the same time using all lasers so it gets rid of all the droopy strings and all of the you know a lot less margin of error um and it's a manual system that people can learn to use in the field that's very easy and and effective yet economical as opposed to like a scanner type system that you know measures millions of points and cost you thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. A lot of agencies can't afford stuff like that. 
Exactly. So this, the kaleidoscope system is a great alternative to those fancy systems. And before, you know, we didn't have the fancy systems when I invented that. So that was my first invention. It's sold around the world, 30 countries or so by 11 distributors. And, um, and then I invented victim-centered death investigation methodology, which is a scientific multidisciplinary methodology that turned into the murder room. So first there was this death investigation methodology that um, basically not only identified all the information, but then organized all the information, uh -huh. sorted, organized, categorized. Then after all that was done, then it broke it into groups and began to analyze it. And then eventually you would get to like a manner of death at the end. As time went on and after I wrote the book, after I got out of PhD school and my dissertation was crime scene behaviors of crime scene stagers, third mm. dissertation in the world on staging. And then when I wrote the book, crime scene staging dynamics and homicide cases, mm -hmm. that book is the very first book in the world on staging on crime scenes that are staged in homicide cases. So it's basically propelled me into this space of, inventing tools for law enforcement that were super easy to use, super, super field friendly, fast and free that they could remember very easily. Like Petler's trilogy, Petler's trilogy is staging trilogy, three points. When you pull up to the scene, you ask who is in conflict with this victim? That's the first thing you need to know. If you've got an unexpected death that's called in as anything, I don't care if it's it's a homicide, suicide, whatever manner of death they're calling it, or an accident, or um, an injured person, missing person. First thing you need to know is there's someone conflict with that victim. The second thing you need to know is who discovered that victim. And the third thing you need to know before you do anything else is who called 911 and what did they say on that 911 call. And those are the three primary things. If you are answering, you know, John Doe, John Doe, and John Doe for all three of those answers, who's in conflict, who discovered the victim and who called 911, you should proceed with caution and raise the red flag that mm -hmm. you could have, not that you do have, you might, you could maybe have a staged homicide because there is preceding conflict found mm -hmm. in 100% of all staged homicide cases internationally that have ever been studied. So preceding conflict is the foundation of all of that. So then, you know, you take that, that kind of a tool and then expand on that, you know, into victim-centered death investigation methodology, which then expanded into the murder room. The murder room is, you know, of everything I've ever done. <laughs> <laughs> I really am grateful to have thought of the murder room because it not only helps get justice for victims, it helps get answers for families and it helps law enforcement. It helps prosecutors. It's a round table of experts sitting in a giant room with a giant lazy Susan in the middle. And from crime scene to courtroom, everybody puts up their evidence on the lazy Susan. And at the end, you've got a case. And on the probable cause wall, when we start the murder room process, the probable cause wall is empty. Mm -hmm. 
And at the end of the process, end of stage six, it's a six stage quantitative and qualitative scientific multidisciplinary process. When you are finished, if it is a murder case and it is a manner of death homicide and criminal act of murder, which are two totally different things. Homicide means one human killed another human. It's a medical term. Right. Murder, manslaughter, those are criminal terms, legal right. terms. So you can have a homicide, but it's not a murder. Mm -hmm. Right? Correct. So at the end, you'll have a probable cause wall full of probable cause items of which then the prosecutorial team and the jurisdiction, uh, jurisdictional agency can then decide, do we have enough for an arrest? Yep, we do. Do we have enough to prosecute? Mm -hmm. uh, you know what? We need to go a little further. Or, yep, we do. Let's go make the arrest. So the murder room resolves manner of death in almost every case that's ever been through it. It resolves, it can develop, help you develop prosecutorial strategy. It can also show you people that are innocent and don't belong involved in the situation. It sequesters all of the white noise and all of the muddy water. All that gets put on one wall and out and set away from all of the critical evidence so that investigators can focus on mm -hmm. the critical evidence because nine times out of 10, when a case comes to LPA to get put in the murder room, it's A, suspect-centered instead of victim-centered, mm -hmm. and B, it is a case that requires a different organizational system now a word from our sponsor, the Police Officers Credit Union Association. Coming this October 2021 is the Public Safety Business Summit in Savannah, Georgia, a program specifically created for organizations that serve first responders. What you will experience is a high level of networking and collaboration among like-minded leaders who are in the business of serving first responders. What you won't get are a series of boring lectures with no interactivity, ridiculous golf outings that are only appealing to a few attendees, or a couple of retreaded subjects that you can hear at any credit union league event that are just thrown into the curriculum. We offer an engaging agenda where attendees even help to determine the content during the actual conference based on their unique needs. If you run a business, a credit union, or a nonprofit that specifically serves first responders, then the Public Safety Business Summit is for you. For more information, go to www.policecreditunions.com or call 331-300-9889. We hope to see you in Savannah this fall. Oh, I always say that, um, why don't you try the other smoking gun, which is, victimology mm -hmm. you know victimology is the smoking gun it really in in a lot of cases almost all homicide cases tells you why the victim's dead so if you know why the victim's dead then you know maybe who killed the victim or who wanted the victim killed um there's something we use here called the conflict resolution benefit matrix it's a phenomenal tool it is part of the murder room and it has three columns. And when you use the CRB, 
Basically, you identify all of the preceding conflict between a victim and whoever. So if you have five suspects, you should run five CRBs. Hmm. One CRB for each, each suspect. And here's why. The CRB, say that you circle uh, who's in conflict with this victim. What's the conflict? Divorce, breakup, affair, child support, uh, child custody, unwanted pregnancy, debt, you know, any of those kind of things, or sometimes all of them, you know, I mean, in a lot of cases, and then it culminates into an argument, mm-hmm. right? And they've, they have this end up this big blowout. Well, an argument is, of course, verbally two people or, you know, in written linguistically arguing over something. And then, and then some people choose murder to resolve the conflict. I've, I've heard that. Yeah. Yeah, some people <laughs> choose talking. Yeah. And then some people choose murder. Murder is conflict resolution for certain types of offenders, like, you know, people that are arguing. Um, and in that frame of m- using murder as a resolution, when you look back at what happened right before the murder, you know, in the 30 days prior, typically sometimes 90 days prior, mm-hmm. um, it, you know, you go out, we do all these macro timelines all the way down to micro and then sub micro and micro micro timelines that are, you know, by the minute all the mm-hmm. way up to the, the, the milestones, the past six months, you know, macro to micro on everything. So in, in the, resolution column of the CRB, you've identified all of the conflict in the first column. In the second column, you're identifying that murder was used as the resolution tool. So is it reflective of anger? Is it reflective of power? I mean, what's it reflective of? And it will be reflective of what you are seeing in column one and um, the personality and cognition and behavior and emotionality, all of that will be reflected in that murder. And then in column three, you ask who benefits from the death of this victim? Well, it's pretty obvious who benefits from the death of this victim. Well, then how do they benefit from the death of the victim? So if you circled debt and you circled divorce and you circled breakup and child support and child custody, and you moved all that to column three and say, how does this suspect that we're running through here benefit from the death of this victim? Is the divorce issue resolved? Yeah, there's no more costly divorce. Is the child custody issue resolved? Yeah, there's not another parent to share custody with. Is the child support issue resolved? Yeah, sure is, because there's nobody to pay or there's nobody that has to be paid. And it goes on and on and on. Once you have a CRB run for every suspect you have Mm -hmm. in, in a case, you will have this shining star suspect who comes out very very you know shines brightly in the benefit column and uh you want to pay more attention to that one if you have you know other suspects that aren't benefiting from the victim's death murder doesn't happen in a vacuum Mm -hmm. so why would they kill them you know what i mean i mean that's uh, it's a problem so so uh the murder room gets us to a lot of answers and it's it's primarily an organizational system first, mm-hmm. and then it is an analytical system second, 
then it synthesizes everything, and then it evaluates all the critical evidence in totality for prosecutors and investigators and people in charge to make decisions. Very, very interesting. Thank you. Uh, yeah, you know, it's in in hearing you explain the methodology. Uh, there, it, it, unless somebody is a psychopath, there's got to be some type of benefit, unless. The reason is just, hey, I enjoy killing people. <laughs> well, well, psychopaths definitely benefit from yeah. um, from murder in lots of different ways. Sometimes it just can be the satiation of the satisfying of anger. Yeah. Sometimes it can be the satisfa satisfa uh, satisfaction of power and control mm -hmm. over a victim. Like in domestic violence homicide, it's always power and control centered. And then sometimes you have anger and sometimes you don't have anger present. But, you know, it's... Um, the psychopathy of people, people think that mental illness correlates very strongly with homicide. And it's, that's actually not true. Hmm. Statistically, there's, there's fewer people that are mentally ill that cause harm to others. They more cause harm to themselves um, than they do to the, to others. Um, from a homicide standpoint, of course, you know, there's uh, ancillary issues that people have with people sure. that, you know, substance abuse or whatever it is, but in general, you know, there's just not a high rate of, you know, mentally ill people like by the stigma of what mental illness mm -hmm. means in this country, committing as many homicides as people think. It's typically anger and it's that's the number one emotion that's always, not always, but a lot of times seen in homicide and it's argument conflict based and it's between two people that know each other. Um, statistically, we have very few stranger on stranger homicides. Does it happen? Mm -hmm. Yes. Is it, you know, beyond tragic when it happens? These people didn't even know each other. Yeah. Yes. It's absolutely tragic. Um, but you know, uh, nine times out of 10, the person who the decedent is going to know the person or have come in contact with them at the gym at, the convenience store, you know, the gas station, the grocery store, somewhere in the community. Starbucks. May not, <laughs> yes, may not know them, but but knows of them. Yeah. But you know, I mean, you know, obviously there are serial offenders that do roam, you know, and hunt in the United States, and um, and they have a particular thing they're looking for. They don't always know their victims. So a lot of times, that is stranger on stranger crime. Not always, but it can be. So, yeah, you know, psychopaths um, have their own objectives for how they're going to benefit from murder. Yet, yet another reason to isolate from everybody. Uh, but yeah. <laughs> I'm never going to Starbucks or the gym again. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'll save, I like quarantine myself. <laughs> I'll save money on both ends. Um, there you go. <laughs> yes. I, I, I literally could continue. I, I joked that we were going to talk for three hours. I could probably do that <laughs> easily. Uh, but as we start wrapping it up for if, for nothing else, for my own curiosity, uh, can you talk about the the toughest crime scene to have to recreate, whether it was physically or using your methodology? One one where you were just kind of like, all right, even even with all my talents and expertise, this is a tough one. You know, I actually have to say that it was the very first one I ever worked hmm. because I. It's funny because. When I was young, you know, when we're all young, we get all this training and we get all this education. And then, you know, we think we're ready. We think, okay, yeah, okay, I can do this. So, I, I got this. I got this yeah, by the horns. <laughs> yes. And so then I was sent to my first scene 
and just stood there and just stared in silence. <laughs> what do I do with this? <laughs> I just, I was like, there's blood everywhere. There's bullets. Um, uh, okay, give me a minute. You know, like I seriously, I thought I was just gonna like roll in there and know what I was doing and, you know, come out like, you know, like, oh yeah, I did this, I did that. No, no, that is not what happened. That is not what happened at all. So that was like, that was the most difficult one, difficult one for me. It was the very first one out by myself, you know, because um, I didn't know where to start. Yeah. I, I had all, I mean, literally at that you point. Didn't, you didn't have a mentor or a partner or somebody. That could, <laughs> this was that could the one your... after the mentorship. <laughs> this was the one that I got sent to after the hundred hour internship, all of it, all of it. I still, I went out there and it was, it was, um, layers and when there's layers of injury to victims you have mm -hmm. overlapping blood stain patterns many times mm -hmm. you have uh bullet holes in different places and some holes that don't go with that scene because people shoot stuff anyway other times <laughs> and so like you have to figure all of that out and yeah. it's a very fluid situation so like i have to say the very first scene that i worked as a in the private sector probably back in 2003 was the was the hardest one for me after that it got easier um the whitmire case here in north carolina uh kristen karen fur was the victim's name she was beaten to death by edwin whitmire who is serving life sentence mm. um he beat her just with his fists but it moved through their living room in a way that I could see how the blood was showing me and telling me how it moved. But then every blow had to be reconstructed. Yeah. So it took me four days to reconstruct the blood stains in that scene. Um, and then he drug her into the bathroom and so there were blood stains going to the bathroom. Then there were blood stains in the bathroom because that's where she actually died. Mm -hmm. uh, he strangled her with the, pressed the um, shower curtain rod onto her throat. So there were multiple levels of overlapping injury in multiple places in that crime scene. And it literally took me days to mm -hmm. reconstruct all the blood. In the end, of all the blows that I had reconstructed with different poles, like different, you know, each pole was a different blow. And that was when I was using strings. <laughs> That's a lot of you yarn. Know? <laughs> oh my God, it was ridiculous. And so like, I'm pulling them all back and you know, my boss, the DA is like, are you done? I'm like, no, I'm not done. You know, I'm no, I'm not done. And it, it ended up that, um, Whitmire went on the run. He drove from North Carolina up to New York, then went all the way down to Florida, and then went all the way like back into Georgia. We had a bolo out on him, and he was arrested. Mm -hmm. And eventually, when he decided to go ahead and give his statement, it turned out that the way I had arranged, the way that I thought the 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 initial assault location and the mm -hmm. second assault location, I had one, two, three, four, five. It actually was two, one, three, four, five, six, seven. So I had the first two backwards. Are you saying you got something wrong, Doc? I find that yes. hard to believe. No, I did, Ken. 
<laughs> I did. I got it wrong. I had him switched. And so when I, when I read his statement, I said, Oh, you know, and then I was like, oh, I get it now. But the blood, it overlapped to the point where I, I literally mixed them up and it didn't matter. I mean, he beat her to death one way or the other. Right. But, but for me and the science of it, it mattered to me, you know, is there a way that I could learn from that, you know, so that I get it right then, but you're talking about like 10, 15 blows in a row mm -hmm. around a room and then drug into the kitchen. So for me, yes, I did have those switched, but, um, looking at the blood, there wasn't a way to determine one from the other. It was, mm -hmm. they, you just couldn't tell. And I did the best that I could, um, and had them off by, you know, a foot instead of him assaulting her here, he assaulted her here, literally. Yeah. I mean, it was literally a matter of feet. It was from the door of the living room to the edge of the couch of the living room, which was within two feet of it. So, um, it still was a very strong reconstruction. It did take days and it did help uh, in that case, you know, resolve that case to give answers to everyone of how this happened. Because, um, you know, they never tell you everything. You know, the defendant mm -hmm. is never going to tell you everything. Plus, they're going to lie, you know, to self preserve at right. some level, even if they're confessing. Um, except one of our serial killers here who confessed and then asked for the death penalty. And we can't let you plea to the death penalty. Yeah. So he got multiple life sentences. But in my career, that was the only person, only defendant I've ever had that uh, actually wanted to plea to the death penalty. And, you know, he's serving multiple life sentences as well. Sure. So, yeah. Well, very, very interesting. I, Thank I, you. I could talk to you for four days. <laughs> but, but, but that oh, would be... That would be a lot more boring for you than reconstructing a scene for four days. But um, I I learned a ton for Thank our audience you. out there that also want to learn a ton from you, whether it's to find your book, you know, have you in a program. I do two or... webinars every month. Exactly. I do two, two webinars can, every month. How can they best find you? Um, you can go to laurapetler.com and that has a lot of information on there about what, what I do as a practitioner. And then there, we have our website for Laura Petler and associates, which is LPA team, T E A M.com. Uh, that will take you into the space of what we do casework wise. And then it also gives you a link to our school, we actually have our very own school here at LPA, the LPA International Forensics Institute. It's a school of forensic criminology. So it has very unique classes like introduction to suicidology or mm -hmm. investigating staged suicides with firearms, things that are pretty unique. And then I do two webinars a month. The first webinar of the month is always forensic criminology. So it combines um, physical evidence, behavior, and sociology. And then the second webinar that I do every month is on something crime scene reconstruction related. So it's either a blood stain reconstruction or a shooting reconstruction that I do like during the webinar, like literally sitting here, like I'm rebuilding things like, you know, for the attendees. Um, we have a new podcast coming out. I'm the co-host of a podcast called Life After Happy Face with Melissa Moore, who was the crime correspondent who I was with. Uh, for the four seasons that I was on the Dr. Oz show as the forensic criminologist, she was the crime correspondent during those four seasons, uh, seasons eight, nine, 10, and 11. And 
Um, she is the daughter of Keith Jesperson, the happy face serial killer, and he's serving nine life sentences. And Melissa did a podcast called Happy Face, where she talked all about her experience as the daughter of a being raised by a serial killer. And that, and now she has a new podcast coming out of which I'm the co-host called Life After Happy Face. Should come out probably the end of April. Um, and then in the future, coming up soon, we have LPA's new new podcast coming out called The Murder Room. And it will be coming out sometime probably 2021, maybe early 2022. So yeah, there's a lot going on. That's nope. the easiest way to find me. <laughs> no, no wonder you don't cook. You don't have any time. I wonder if you even sleep. No. <laughs> I do sleep. No, sleeping is very important. Yeah, sleeping is very important. But my social media handle is at Dr. Laura Petler, D-R-L-A-U-R-A-P-E-T-T-L-E-R. Um, you know, and I'm we're on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. Got it. Well, I really truly and sincerely appreciate with everything you got going on that you were able to make a little bit of time for us doc i really appreciate you being on thank the show. you for having me my pleasure and thank you to all of you who have either watched or listened to this episode of public safety talk thank radio you. and we'll be back thank with you. you i really appreciate the invitation <laughs> my pleasure Public Safety Talk Radio is produced by the POCUA. POCUA is a consortium of financial institutions serving law enforcement as well as other first responders and public safety professionals. To learn more about our association and to find one of our credit unions or service providers near you, go to www.policecreditunions.com. And always remember, if you aren't working with one of our POCUA credit unions, you're just banking with an institution that just so happens to serve first responders. As a public safety professional, you and your family deserve better. Find a POCUA credit union today.